Science Friday is supported by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Later in the hour, we'll discuss what we're starting to learn about long COVID. And we want your calls and questions. Our number, 844-724-8255. That's 844-SCI-TALK if you have questions about long COVID or you want to share your own information. But first, you know, it either seems like yesterday or a very long time ago, but it was actually two years ago today that the WHO declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Later this month, Hawaii will become the 50th and final U.S. state to drop indoor mask requirements. Those and other COVID-19 protections have been tumbling down nationwide as the winter Omicron surge has eased. But case numbers are still going up elsewhere in the world and signal a virus that is far from finished. Here with more on this and other recent stories is science journalist Roxanne Kamsi. She joins us from Montreal, Quebec. Welcome back, Roxanne. Hi, Ira. It's great to be back. Nice to have you. Okay, let's get right into this. We really have seen a lot of COVID-19 protections taken down in the U.S. in the last couple of weeks. What reasons have been given for this? Well, yeah, it's true. So recently the CDC said that 98% of Americans live in locations where you don't have to wear a mask indoors if you don't have any predisposing uh, conditions that would put you at extra risk. And part of that's because they have determined that enough people have immunity. um, And they've also kind of changed the calculus in terms of what is a high risk environment. So they've kind of hired the threshold of the number of cases that makes a place a high risk um, location. Yeah, but it's not just the US dropping protections either, right? Other countries have. No, a whole bunch of countries yeah. have. The UK has, and you know, Austria recently backtracked. There was a mandate that those about to go in effect for people to be mandated to be vaccinated, and recently lawmakers took a step back and said, actually, we're not going to enforce that. So there's definitely a walking back of restrictions and things like that in a lot of places, not just the U.S. On the other hand, there are places where case numbers are definitely not going down. We're watching the numbers go up. So absolutely. And this is happening in a lot of places where they had a COVID zero policy. So they'd really been successful in keeping the virus at bay for for months and months and months. Someplace like Hong Kong, the highest number of cases of COVID that they had in a day last year was 60. And now they have tens of thousands of cases a day and I think around 250 Mm. people a day dying, which for a place with not a huge population is an extremely high number. And China seems to also be 
perhaps heading in that direction too. Hmm. We'll have to look into that in great detail as we as we go on in the months. There's also a subvariant of Omicron beginning to circulate yeah. more widely, right? Right, exactly. BA two. And I think what's interesting is there's been a, a huge consensus that it's more transmissible than the original Omicron variant. What seems to be still in debate is whether it, it's more dangerous. Uh, a lot of people say no, some yeah. people say yes. Yeah. But yeah, so we're not done with variants by any means. The story is not over at all. Yeah, we're not done with, with the virus. We'll get into that a little bit later also. But let's move on to other infectious disease news, especially polio. Polio has been close to eradication for years now, but we're still not there, right? A few weeks ago, we talked about its reemergence in, in Mowali. Mowali, Mowali, and now the Russian invasion of Ukraine may be further jeopardizing the end of this virus. Why is that? Well, I think this is a really interesting and and some in somewhat, in a way, sad story. I mean, so the polio eradication campaign launched in 1988. And it's possible because polio doesn't have an animal reservoir. Unlike SARS-CoV-2, it really just happens in humans and of course can cause paralysis and uh, really horrible uh, effects. But by 2017, there were only 17 cases of polio in the world, which was a great achievement. Yeah, yeah. And then in recent years, um, in, in places, particularly war-torn places like Afghanistan and other um, regions like that, it's been creeping up. And as you mentioned, in Ukraine, there was um, a, an uptick in polio where there were two kids that got pa paralyzed with polio not that long ago, the last case being in January. And it indicates that the virus is still circulating there and that, uh, you know, with only 50% of kids under one vaccinated against polio there and the, the war now happening, just totally disrupting vaccination campaigns, there's a huge worry that this is going to set back this campaign to eradicate polio, which has until recent years been such a success story. Yeah, because we do have very effective vaccines for it. Absolutely. I mean, there's two different kinds of vaccines. One is uh, given orally. It's like a drop in the mouth. Um, and then the other one is, is a uh, shot. Um, and there's different strategies. The, the, the one that's given in, as drops in the mouth is more yeah. feasible to be given in conflict regions. Of course, the downside is it's not quite as effective as the shot. Right, so. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're actually going to go back to a story now that you brought us two months ago when it was reported that a man had received a heart transplant using the heart of a genetically modified pig. But the the update is a sad one, is it not? It is a sad one. And I'm really sorry to bring this news, but the patient, David Bennett, who received the pig from, a, uh, sorry, the, received the heart from a pig, unfortunately passed away this past week. And the doctors who did the transplant aren't quite sure what happened. They don't know if his body rejected this heart that had been so specially tailored to not be rejected mm. by his body, by these genetic modifications in the pig that it came from. Um, they're putting together a report, but you know, for him, it was really like a last resort option. He didn't have, he was too sick to receive uh, a human heart. So uh, to, to be on the to be in a place on the wait list where he would receive a human heart. So this, for him, was kind of the last opportunity. Yeah. And unfortunately, it didn't work we'll out. We'll have to wait and see what they haven't published their findings yet, but we'll have to wait and see for that. 
Um, yes, absolutely. On to something uh, a little bit different, history nerds. We are excited this week at the announcement that the ship of explorer Ernest Shackleton has been discovered more than a century after it was lost to crushing Antarctic ice. I mean, I was someone who's been to Antarctica. That's all they talk about when I was there. That's <laughs> how, how brave and, and smart he was. This is thrilling to see. And, and you know, there were video, there's video of this. Yes. It's also, it seems surreal in some ways. It, I, I know we're on the radio, so people can't like, see what we're talking about, but it looks like somebody just dropped it there yesterday when in fact it's been there for 107 yeah. years. Yeah. I, a part of me wonders if it's, it's so well preserved because it's in this cold area, which is of course also why it was so hard to find. If you listen to the researchers who found it talking about the journey to like uncover where it actually was, they talk about, you know, snowstorms, ice storms, all sorts of elements that kept them from, you know, being in the right place to drop this uh, device, this robotic yeah. device under the ocean to search. So, um, but yeah, so they've, they've uncovered the endurance, which Shackleton had been, had set out with to try to traverse Antarctica after kind of um, missing out on being the first person to get to the South Pole. And, um, and 3,000 meters under the ocean, or the sea there, it, it sat for 107 years right. until today they found it. It's only fitting that the, it took so much effort to get it because he took so much effort to, to save all of his crew. <laughs> no one no one died in that rescue. It's an amazing story, but it's too long it's for amazing. us to tell. I, go go Google it. It's un, it's unbelievable. One last it's story. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I was just going to say they kind of camped out on the ice right. uh, for months before they could get you know, to, to, safer, to safer ground with lifeboats. And then there was this 800-mile trip in a lifeboat that went to a, an island where they could try to bring back some rescue people, and they, it's they, they did. It's an, it's an incredible, incredible feat. One last story, just in time uh, for Daylight Savings, because ah. that's happening this weekend. Who knew so quickly? You've got a story about Stonehenge. It's, Who doesn't love Stonehenge? Uh, we all do, right? It's mysterious. We think it might have uh, told time somehow, and now someone thinks they figured out exactly how. What's the deal here? Right, and you're totally right. This is just perfect timing because we're all going to set our clocks back uh, an hour, or uh, sorry, skip ahead an hour. I can never keep track of that. Um, and and the, so Stonehenge used to be thought of as kind of built around the solstices, um, you know, winter and, and summer. But a, a reanalysis has looked at the stones and said, actually, this might be a solar calendar, kind of not too dissimilar from what we have today. With three, we have 365 days and then a leap day every four years. This was 365.25 days, similar to what the Egyptians had figured out um, wow. a couple centuries before. Wow. I want to throw in a bonus story that you have for us today. That's something about researchers finally talking about sharks sleeping. Sharks. Yes. The don't, only don't, kind don't. of shark I ever want to encounter <laughs> is a sleeping shark. <laughs> well, you know, because the, the I remember being a scuba diver that they said the sharks are sleeping. They're not moving, but they have to keep the water moving past their gills so that they can still breathe. But they do sleep. Is that what we're finding here? Yeah. So this is this is a study that was done on um, a particular kind of uh, shark known as a draft board shark, which like, it, it gets its name from its checkered um 
like external, I guess skin is what you'd call it. And scientists kind of had an idea that sharks slept, but they, they weren't really sure. No one had to like put them in a tank to like observe yeah. and find out. So they did this and using certain physiological measures, like how much oxygen they were consuming. And also interestingly, like their eye movements, they appeared to be, so they determined that when they were sleeping, they were using like half as much energy as when they were resting. And also that they had a different position. So they were flatter when they were hmm. sleeping as opposed to a little bit more upright. So they kind of had their like torsos perked up when they were resting a little bit more, like one of these yoga positions. <laughs> I'll, now I, I, you, I've heard it. I can't get it out of my mind. I'm going to think shark yoga next time I'm on my mat. <laughs> and, and especially with breathing, right? That's what yoga is all about. We know that sharks Yes, are, and resting. And, and resting. And restorativeness, yes. <laughs> Terrific, Roxanne. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Great stuff. Great. Talk to you later. Thanks, Ira. Roxanne Comsey is a science journalist based in Montreal. We have to take a quick break. And when we come back, how Russia's invasion of Ukraine has disrupted a multinational survey of wild salmon. And the, and the scientists are trying to figure out how they can continue this without, you know, without, without all the, the implications that it has working with Russia. We want also your calls about long COVID. We're going to be talking about it. Give us a call. Our number... 844-724-8255. That's 844-SCI-TALK. Do you have long COVID? Do you have people you know? We're going to have a couple of experts talking about it. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Now it's time to check in on the state of science. This is KERA for WWNO, St. Louis Public Radio, Iowa Public Radio News. Local science stories of national significance. A little over a month ago, scientists from the U.S., Russia, Canada, Japan, and South Korea embarked on a collaborative scientific survey to track wild salmon in the North Pacific Ocean. Then Russia invaded Ukraine, setting in motion, as you can imagine, a substantially more tense political situation to navigate. Yet despite the tension, scientists have opted to continue to collaborate in pursuit of understanding the recent fluctuations in the wild salmon population. Joining me now to talk about his reporting on the topic is Eric Stone, news director of KRBD based in Ketchikan, Alaska. Eric, welcome to Science Friday. Hi, thank you for having me. You're welcome. Before we get into the details of this research project, Let's start with some basics of a salmon's life cycle, okay, for those of us who might need a refresher. What is the salmon run? Okay, so salmon spend part of their lives in freshwater and part of their lives in saltwater. They're what's called an anadromous fish. And basically what happens is they hatch from eggs in these rivers, and then they swim out to sea after fattening up just a little bit. And they spend a little while out there, generally two to five years, depending on the species, eating things like herring and squid and all kinds of stuff. And then towards the end of their lives, they swim back up the river to deposit eggs and fertilize the eggs and start the cycle over. And they can swim sometimes 
sometimes more than 2,000 miles in at least one river in Alaska. Wow. And as they swim up uh, the river, they don't eat. It's remarkable. And in Western Alaska in particular, and, you know, frankly, all over Alaska, these salmon are vital sources of food for indigenous people. People catch them in nets and fish wheels, and people catch them with rods and reels as well. It's an important cultural phenomenon. People construct these things called fish camps where they uh, go and gather, you know, their food source for the winter and uh, catch all these salmon. And, you know, not to mention commercial salmon fishing is a huge industry here in Alaska that employs lots of people. It also feeds people all over the United States and all over the world. And so there are lots of rivers in Alaska where the salmon are running and maybe they fluctuate about the, the number of salmon that are migrating. That's right. Yeah. So the salmon runs on these various rivers. They fluctuate in weird ways, and we don't totally know why. So I'll give you a few examples. Pink salmon harvests here in southeast Alaska were among the lowest in decades in 2020. And then in 2021, pink salmon beat the forecast by a good bit. Wow. King salmon stocks all over southeast Alaska are also in trouble, like fishing for any salmon near the mouth of a major river here in Ketchikan has been banned outright for years. But it's really in western Alaska where the salmon runs have been in crisis the most recently. So in 2020, the Yukon River chum salmon run faltered. Chum salmon is a species of salmon, one of the five Pacific salmon species. And then in 2021, the run totally collapsed. There were so few fish that people were not allowed to fish. And that's, you know, a large component of how people feed themselves. Authorities had to ban fishing up and down the river to preserve what little of the run remained. And it was a massive shock to people who depend on salmon, go to great lengths to replace it. One resident told Olivia Eberts of radio station KYUK in that area that he took his river-going skiff into the dangerous waves of the Bering Sea but runs on the Kuskokwim River that have also been faltering. Mike Williams Sr. of the Kuskokwim Intertribal Fish Commission, that's an organization that manages and researches salmon in the area, told me that he's worried about runs all over the region. We depend on the salmon to sustain us through the winter, and we're very concerned about the returns of our salmon in all of the rivers in western Alaska. And while the salmon run collapsed in that area on the Yukon River and is, is trending down on the Kuskokwim River, that same year in 2021, the sockeye salmon run in Bristol Bay, which is a giant commercial fishery, that set a new record. That's amazing. So, so what you want to know and what the scientists want to know is why this wild fluctuation is going on. Yeah, that's right. And the problem is we don't know. Uh, most of the effort that's gone into studying salmon has been focused on what happens in freshwater, you know, where they reproduce. Right. Scientists think that issues happen in the open ocean while they're out fattening up. There has been some research and there are a few theories. I'll run through a couple of those. Uh, one is bycatch, the idea that salmon at sea are getting scooped up in the nets for sole and flounder or pollock, accidentally caught, more or less. Another is that hatcheries, basically there are these facilities where salmon are raised from eggs into you know, juvenile salmon, and they're artificially enhancing wild populations. And one of the theories is that those artificially enhanced populations are outcompeting wild salmon. And then the third theory is that climate change is messing with the food web. That's, you know, warmer mm. ocean, more acidic. So we know the ocean is changing, but not as much how the salmon are reacting to the condition. It's it's kind of a big black box. What is the 2022 Pan-Pacific Winter High Seas Expedition? And how will it help test some of these theories? 
So basically, it's a giant effort to study what happens in the black box of the open ocean during the winter. So vessels from three of the five countries you said at the top, the U.S., Canada, and Russia, they're out canvassing the North Pacific as we speak right now. They're putting a net down to see what kind of salmon there are. And the reason they're doing it during the winter is that winter is an especially tough time for salmon. There's not as much food, and this is where, where it's hypothesized that most of them die. So this is a good time to figure out what's going on with the population. So the idea is to give a better idea of how salmon are reacting with predators, with each other, with ocean conditions, kind of shine some light in that black box. Yeah. G given the current political situation, is the survey going on as planned? Has there been any talk about uh, not cooperating or eliminating Russia from this survey? So I haven't heard any talk about, you know, cutting Russia out. They're doing a massive amount of work on this subject. And the survey is still going ahead. There have been some modifications. One, uh, you know, an interesting thing is that uh, one of the survey vessels from Russia, the one that's covering an area that goes from about the middle of the Alaska Peninsula, so it's kind of even with the west coast of Alaska, all the way out to the almost the end of the Aleutian chains. They actually tied up in Dutch Harbor, that's the deadliest catch port, um, a day after Russians invaded Ukraine and started their assault on Kyiv. And now what happened is that a U.S.-based scientist was not allowed to board. So what happens now is that Russians are not allowed to survey within the 230-mile exclusive economic zone of the United States, basically, you know, waters close to the United States. And that is going to have impacts on the results of the study. It doesn't mean the mission is a failure, according to one of the scientists I talked to, but it means that salmon activity within that area near the Aleutian chain is going to remain a mystery for now. So I spoke with Bill Templin. He's Alaska's chief salmon scientist, and he told me the five-country commission has worked together in times of tension before. He said some Russian scientists actually included disputed islands in some salmon stock maps, and the Japanese had to politely ask him to change the maps. So he said that was all in good fun, but this is quite a bit more tension than usual. Even so, Templin told me that the salmon scientists are used to putting their work first and their political leaders' policies second. The salmon all go to the same place. And so for all of us to work together to understand what's happening out there and the way it affects our nation, I think it's a pretty huge deal, and I'd hate to see it go away. And you can actually track all of these vessels. There are four of them from the U.S., Canada, and Russia. They're all on a map at yearofthesalmon.org. Wow. I think I'm going to do that. Thank you, Eric. Great report. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It was, it was really a pleasure to be on. Eric Stone, News Director of KRBD, based in Ketchikan, Alaska. For the rest of the hour, we're going to talk about a topic that should be on a lot of people's minds, but likely isn't. I'm talking about long COVID. This is where folks who get COVID have symptoms that last for weeks, months, sometimes even years after their initial infection. Much of the country has rolled back mask mandates, thinking we've moved on from COVID. But there is a group of people who may have to live with it indefinitely. It's not over for them. Long COVID affects people in different ways. Some report debilitating fatigue or a persistent brain fog that makes it hard to concentrate. And for many long haulers, exercise and basic movement is not the same as it was pre-infection. There's still a lot we don't understand about the underlying causes of these symptoms, or why some people develop long COVID while others don't, or could even a mild case or a symptom-free case of COVID lead to more debilitating illness later in life. 
Over the last two years, researchers have slowly accumulated more knowledge about the drivers of long COVID and how best to treat it. And that's what we're going to be talking about now. Joining me today are two people intimately familiar with long COVID. Let me introduce them. Dr. David Petrino, Director of Rehabilitation Innovation at Mount Sinai Health System in New York. New York. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you for having me. And Hannah Davis, co-founder of the Patient-Led Research Collaborative. She's based in Brooklyn. Hannah, welcome to Science Friday. Thanks. It's great to be here. Nice to have you. Dr. Petrino, are you seeing a surge of new long COVID cases as a result of the Omicron surge? Um, absolutely. I think we're, we're certainly seeing um, more cases coming through. Uh, as a result of the Omicron surge, but I would also point out that um, many individuals are only just starting to get care now from some of the initial waves of, of COVID-19. So um, it often takes a little while for patients to get to us um, once they've been ill. And have you been able to track it outside of the US and in other countries? Um, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that uh, Hannah, Hannah's work and the work of the patient-led collaborative has been phenomenal at this, but um, certainly we've been tracking the literature and uh, that has been published in, in other countries and um, countries that have been uh, putting out more um, work than the United States in actually trying to track across the entire country. and, and uh, the numbers are concerning. You know, mm. uh, the most recent U ONC report from the UK showed that two percent, an estimated two percent of the UK population, has long COVID. That's amazing. How likely are vaccinated and boosted people to get long COVID versus those who are not? This is a tough question to answer. We certainly know that um, there is emerging literature to suggest that perhaps um, your uh, probability of going on to develop long COVID is reduced uh, post-vaccine. But the most up-to-date data that has been published on this matter still places it at a pretty high percentage. Um, so the, the most recent estimates would suggest that um, in breakthrough COVID infections, that is COVID infections that are occurring uh, in people who are fully vaccinated, uh, there still appears to be around a 10% chance of going on to develop long COVID symptoms um, which is wow. very, very high. Wow, yeah. Wow. wow. Let's take a question from a listener who sent us one through our Vox Pop app. I'm Deb in Portland, Oregon. I'm curious about whether the uh, rumors that I've heard about sometimes um, vaccinations helping people who have long COVID to kind of reboot their systems uh, and have their symptoms improve, whether that's true or not. What do you say? I think that's a great question. Um, the way that we're currently viewing uh, vaccinations and their role in um, long COVID symptoms is I, I view a vaccination as a symptom modifier. Um, so some people are experiencing worsening symptoms. Other people are experiencing improvement in symptoms. And a, a larger majority of individuals uh, don't really see a change in their symptoms um, mm. post-vaccination. So. This is interesting because it gives us some clue as to um, how some people with long COVID may have some immune underpinnings that are influencing their symptoms. And there's some phenomenal work happening um, 
uh, under the leadership of Akiko Iwasaki out at Yale University looking into um, uh, this exact question. But right now, I, I would not say that you can rely on a vaccine to improve your long COVID symptoms. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Talking about uh, long COVID with uh, Hannah Davis and Dr. David Petrino. And Hannah, let me go to you. Why, why did you decide to start the patient-led research collaborative? So I'm a co-founder of it with four other um, patients who are in some context a researcher or data scientist or policymaker before getting sick. Um, for us, we all got sick in March 2020 in the first wave. And at the time, there were no answers for us. You know, the CDC was still talking about this as something that didn't affect younger people, that everyone would recover from in two weeks if they weren't hospitalized. Um, and we had all gotten sick and were still sick. And in April 2020, we're still sick and um, really had no clue what was happening. There was no public communication. And so we all joined the body politics support group um, and it's on Slack, so there was a data nerds channel. So that's that really selected for people who were very curious and kind of looking for any data or any answer to explain what was happening to us. Um, and one woman, Gina Asaf, decided to make a survey of all of the patients at that time, several thousand patients who were experiencing these symptoms. Um, and I joined right when they had collected the data. So I offered my skills and my background was in mm. machine learning. Um, and, you know, we just wanted to get answers for ourselves at first. But right. at the time, that was the only data available. So we started getting calls from the CDC, et cetera, um, and then, you know, decided to keep continuing the research. Why is it so important to have patients driving the research conversation? I think especially for under-researched and poorly understood illnesses, um, doctors' hypotheses might not necessarily be the the most accurate. Um, patients have the strongest understanding of the illness because they've have they have lived experience of it, and this leads to knowing the right questions to ask in research. Um, and so, listening to patients and engaging in patient-led research uh, helps speed research up overall because you can kind of focus on the areas um, that seem to be the biggest clues. Do you think that healthcare officials were sort of ignoring long COVID patients, long haulers for oh, from the beginning? Yes, definitely. I think one of the things that bothers me the most is that we actually have so much evidence, um, including in the last SARS, including other uh, viruses like EBV, that many, many viruses lead to long-term effects. Um, you know, myalgic encephalomyelitis, dysautonomia are really common post-viral conditions. Um, and this should have been integrated into the pandemic response from the start. And that just didn't happen. All right, we're going, to, we're going to take a break. We want to hear more of uh, comments that you have to make. We have a lot of people coming in on Twitter and, our, and on the phones. Our number, 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK. If you want to talk to our, our guest, Dr. David Petrino, Director of Rehabilitation Innovation at Mount Sinai Health System based here in New York, and Hannah Davis, co-founder of the Patient-Led Research Collaborative based in Brooklyn. 844-724-8255. So many questions. We'll see if we can get to as many of them as we can because this is a topic we have to talk about. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. 
This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the phenomenon of long COVID with my guest, Dr. David Petrino, Director of Rehabilitation Innovation at Mount Sinai Health System here in New York. Hannah Davis, co-founder of the Patient-Led Research Collaborative. She's based in Brooklyn, New York. And I'm, I'm going to go to the phones. But before, before I do, I want to bring up an interesting point, I think, that's central to the issue here. And that is that the CDC recently relaxed mask guidelines in many states across the country have followed suit. They've reverted back to pre-pandemic precautions as COVID seems to be going away. Uh, Dr. Petrino, should public health messaging and policies be more focused on long COVID? Um, uh, yes. I mean, in the strongest possible terms, yes. Uh, I, I think that from, from the outset, um, long COVID has been uh, treated more like a shadow pandemic and less like an actual pandemic. Um, people have not been giving it um, the the level of attention it deserves as a mass disabling event in the United States. And the current sort of switch away from safe practice um, across the nation should be cause for alarm for everybody. Um, long COVID is very much a continuing issue that we need to be strongly concerned about. Um, and we still need to strongly get out the message that death is not the only serious outcome of COVID, especially non-hospitalized COVID cases, these so-called mild cases mm -hmm. of COVID. There's nothing mild about an acute case of COVID right now. Hannah? I completely agree. I feel like the, the um, change to deprioritize masks just says that long COVID doesn't matter and it's going to put so many people at risk who don't even realize that they are at risk, honestly, in many cases, because there's been such a lack of um, prioritizing and communicating about how serious long COVID is and how anyone, um, it can happen to anyone and completely, you know, mm -hmm. change your life, possibly permanently. Let's go to the phones to Connor in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Hi, Connor. Are you there? Oh, and who's on the phone? <laughs> All right, let's see. Let's let's hope we're we're working the phones here and that uh, that they're working. Let me go to. Let's see who else we can go to. Um, let's let's go to Audrey in Fairfield. Hi, Audrey. Are you there? Audrey, are you there? Hi, Audrey. I'm here. I'm I'm here. Yes. Hi. Go ahead. Hi, I have a unique situation. I have what's called a prolonged concussion, which means I had two head injuries within six weeks. And I had COVID, my whole family had it, the first week of September, or the two weeks. I had um, all the symptoms of my concussion, uh, which were uh, migraines, I couldn't remember things. Uh, it messes with your whole vestibular system. So I'm still have those um, side effects. Does your, does your what, physician take these things seriously? Yes. What ended up happening is come the middle of October, November, um, I was losing memory. I was getting lost. Um, my eyes were um, getting weak again. My, ma my migraines were unbearable. So I see two neurologists, 
And I also am in cognitive therapy mm. as well as um, eye therapy, which I had graduated from, but now I'm back in it. And my neurologist as well as my eye doctor have said there's no research about right. this right. and they don't know the long-term effects. Right. right. And that is very scary to me. And I don't know if you know anything about that or have you seen anything regarding uh, concussions? Well, well, let, me add my, let me ask my guests, uh, Hannah, Dr. Petrino. I would say that I'm not sure what the impact of COVID is, particularly on post-concussion syndrome, but um, long COVID is definitely very similar to post-concussion syndrome um, in that it causes many of the same symptoms that you just mentioned. Um, I'm not sure if Dr. Petrino knows more than that. Um, yeah, thanks, Hannah. I, I would tend to agree. Um, and first of all, I'm, I'm just so sorry for what you're going through. That it, it does sound very uncertain and, and, and quite frightening. Um, what I would say is that we, many of the symptoms that we see with long COVID um, can be often associated with um, what we call dysautonomia, which is the, a part of the nervous system called the autonomic nervous system, which controls a lot of things that are ordinarily under automatic control in the body, um, getting knocked out of balance. And we know that post-concussion syndrome often uh, is also explainable by dysautonomia as well. And so it is very possible that you've experienced a flare of your existing dysautonomia as a result of uh, your long COVID infection. Your physicians are correct in that we currently don't have a lot of research in people who had post-concussion syndrome and then got COVID to say that this is precisely certainly what is happening. Um, but um, it, it does sound like you're getting good care and um, and it's, there's a good chance that what we're looking at is a worsening of your dysautonomia. Is it possible that you can develop long COVID symptoms without even knowing you have contracted COVID in the first place? First place. Dr. Um, Petrino? Ab absolutely. Um, uh, we, we know for a fact that um, your chance of contracting long COVID is not correlated with the initial severity of your symptoms. So we have certainly seen many individuals who had an asymptomatic course of COVID-19 infection go on to develop long COVID symptoms, which is incredibly alarming uh, when we consider the fact that um, it's hard enough right now to get insurers and um, other care providers to take long COVID seriously when you have a known case of COVID. But if you are an unfortunate individual who had an asymptomatic case of COVID and, and was unable to test positive or develop antibodies, as we know that many people with, long, with COVID do not seroconvert, um, you, you may find yourself in a really uh, tough situation. We have some, uh, we have some uh, tweets that are coming in. Shannon on Twitter asks, if you're not vaccinated, can long COVID effects be more serious or more likely? Uh, certainly more likely. Um, we still don't know all of the factors that contribute to severity of long COVID symptoms, but we certainly know enough now um, that, you know, if you're unvaccinated, um, your, your chances of developing long COVID-like symptoms are more like 30%. 
Uh, that's that's wow. Uh, let's go to the phones because we have lots of people who have questions. Let's see if I can go back to Connor in Harrisburg. Are you there, Connor? Oh, hey, how you doing? Hey there, sorry. go ahead. Oh, sorry, uh, long time listener. I always enjoy uh, listening to your show while at work. Uh, I have uh, an interesting story. I'll keep it short. But uh, I had COVID when it first came out. My mother went on a uh, business trip and uh, she came back sick and she didn't you know, tell anybody. And I got it and it hit me a lot harder than it hit her. And uh, I was under the uh, undercovers for two weeks, uh, all the symptoms, complete nightmare. And uh, as I was re- uh, recovering, it was very, very slow process. Uh, uh, I was on a hike and I got bit on my arm by a tick. And uh, I, I didn't think twice about it. And uh, you know, I, I've probably been bitten by a tick uh, many times before. But instead of my health uh, slowly going towards normal, it was going the opposite direction. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering, uh, uh, like, uh, could there be a relation? Or um, Do you think you've got Lyme disease, is what you're saying? Oh, no, I, I definitely have it. But, yeah. um, did it, did it affect just... COVID? <laughs> did it affect your long hauling? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, let me let me uh, ask the doctors, um, Doctor Petrino. What do you think? Um, you know, we we think about um, long COVID as an infection-associated illness, and um, some of some of the initial work that we're seeing coming out of some, some phenomenal immunology research labs, um, and in in fact, the, the, some of the work that we're doing ourselves is really pointing us toward um, the idea that. Many people with long COVID have um, changes to their immune system occurring, and one of those changes can be that um, some of our um, immune system that deals with making sure that we generate antibodies to fight off um, dormant infections that we have in our body, as well as fighting off Mm. new infections, can be impaired. And so we often see reactivation of old infection-associated illnesses. So many people who previously had well had Lyme disease, but it's been quite dominant for, for, so, for some time, can experience worsening of Lyme symptoms. Uh, Epstein-Barr virus is another very common virus that people are experiencing reactivations of. Um, and the list goes on. There, there are many, many um, uh, previous viruses that can be reactivated by um, the immune sequelae of long COVID. That's really interesting. That's something no one talks about. Um, could something like herpes, things like that, cause a, cause a recurrence? Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Wow. A- anything that was laying dormant can can often be reactivated. And we we I'm sure, uh, you know, I'd love to hear from Hannah because she has way more data than we do. But I, <laughs> well, I'm going to go to Hannah. Let me just give us a break. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Okay, Hannah, you've, you've published two research papers tracking long COVID symptoms. What are the biggest takeaways here? Um, so for us, I think that in the beginning, we kind of um, helped show that long COVID wasn't just respiratory symptoms, that it was kind of cognitive, neurological, systemic, immunologic. Um, the reinfections, like Dr. Petrino was just talking about. Yeah. Our recent paper, one of the biggest findings for me was actually that um, 
cognitive dysfunction and memory loss are in the top three frequent symptoms and happen as equally in 18 to 29 year olds as in people over 60. And so, you know, in the beginning we heard a lot about brain fog, Mm -hmm. um, but we really showed that it it impacts the ability to drive, to take care of your children, um, to communicate, and especially to work. We found that two thirds of people had to either reduce their hours or quit completely. And that didn't even include people who took early retirement because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And then another really big thing we found was that um, as Dr. Petrino mentioned, we have a very big issue with people who weren't able to get tests in the first wave and even in recent waves. You know, Omicron had a lot of testing and accessibility. The CDC um, estimates that only one in four COVID cases have com- com- uh, confirmation. Um, so wow. we actually accepted wow. people that were symptomatic positive and symptomatic negative and then compared them. And we found that the major difference between the two cohorts was not actually in the symptoms. Um, and th- this was looking at you know dozens of symptoms over time. Um, but the date that they got tested after onset. So the positive cohort got tested at an average of day six, the negative cohort got tested at an average of day 43. And so we try to communicate to people that having a negative test doesn't always mean they didn't have COVID. It often means they weren't able to access a test. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Talking with uh, Hannah Davis and Dr. David Petrino, a, a tweet. Uh, this is a really interesting tweet from uh, Maelstrom, who asks, are we going to have a huge population of people suffering debilitating symptoms? Hannah? I think so, yeah. definitely. Um, I mean, from my perspective, you know, there's only a couple of places in the world that are tracking long COVID, you know, at the population level, and one of them is the UK. Um, and they have found right now 2.4% of the entire population has long COVID, and that includes 4% of teachers and healthcare workers. And that's after two years of the pandemic. Um, and we know that, you know, recovery can happen in the first three months, and after that, it's less likely. And if you get diagnosed with something, like myalgic encephalomyelitis um, or dysautonomia or a lot of these other kind of clotting conditions, there's no evidence to show that, you know, that it's not lifelong. It's it's likely lifelong in many of these cases. Um, and every year, if we're disabling, mm-hmm. you know, one and a half extra percent of our population, um, you know, which gets vulnerable every year, more vulnerable every year because having a COVID infection in itself is a pre-existing condition, um, it looks, from my perspective, it looks pretty dismal. Wow. Let me get uh, one last question in for time. Beth in Neptune, New Jersey. Hi, Beth. Oh, hi. I'm sorry. I lost you for a minute. Um, so I have a sort of a complicated case, which I will really try to be succinct about. I have had an, um, I am hypothyroid since I'm two years old. I'm in my 60s now. And a lot of these, um, a lot of these symptoms mimic an underactive thyroid and of course I'm medicated and under the care of an endocrinologist but I was in California President's Weekend when COVID was first starting with my daughter and she came back and was diagnosed with COVID and I never was diagnosed with it I never had specific symptoms and I didn't test for antibodies when I found out she had it however I can honestly say and I'm a teacher and my school started right back that September. So I've been in school for a long time with- Beth, Beth I have to ask you to children. sum up what your question is. So Quickly. my question is, how do I know, is there any way to know if it's my thyroid or 
COVID right. or long-term because all I have symptoms of brain fog. Okay. I had palpitations, okay. I gotcha. all of that. Dr. Petrino, any answer to that? Uh, thank you for sharing uh, that that story. I, I think um, you, you've raised a very important point, which is at present, we do not have a good answer for you. Um, it could be worsening of your thyroid cond condition, or it could be the case, as we were discussing earlier in the in the segment, that um, you had an asymptomatic case of COVID that has led into long COVID. Um, what I can say is that we are working around the clock to try to come up with meaningful, hmm. concrete biomarkers of long COVID that can allow us to um, uh, diagnose long COVID beyond a clinical diagnosis based on symptoms, but we're not quite there yet. All right. We have run out of time. So many questions, so few time, so little time to answer them. Dr. David Petrino, Director of Rehabilitation Innovation, Mount Sinai School of Medicine here in New York. Hannah Davis, co-founder of the Patient-Led Research Collaborative. She's based in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you both for this valuable information today. Thank you so Thank much you. for having us. You're welcome. And if you want to find out how to join the long COVID support groups we've talked about or participate in the patient-led research collaborative survey, go to sciencefriday.com slash long COVID. That's sciencefriday.com slash long COVID. Here's, here's Kyle Marion Viterbo with some of the folks who helped make this show happen. Thanks, Ira. Annie Nero is our individual giving manager. John Dankosky is our director of news and audio. Daniel Peter Schmidt is our digital producer, and I'm community manager Kyle Marion Viterbo. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Kyle. B.J. Liedemann composed our theme music. Thank you all for listening. I'm Ira Flato in New York.